0: Scripture reading this morning is first Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9, First Peter 1, three through 9. I will also be reading from Matthew 28. You don't need to turn to Matthew 28. I want to give us the, the resurrection account itself as we meditate on first Peter 1, 3 through 9, but I will first read from Matthew 28 verses 1 to 10. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you to hear you speak to us. We don't need to listen to you in the depths of our mind as if we could hear your voice whispering to us, nor do we need to stand questioning and wondering what your will is for us. We can open your word and read it. What a gift, what a gift to receive the words of life, the gospel. We pray that as we turn our attention to it, we would give you the proper respect for we encounter you in your word. We ask then that you would calm our minds, clarify them, let us devote our attention to them, and in many ways they are beyond us, and so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a clarity of thought, that you would open our minds, for we know we will receive nothing that you do not reveal. Reveal, then, your true words to us, that it may be our living hope, that it may be the balm and the comfort that we seek in you. But do this most, and this is our most high desire, that you would be praised and glorified in the awe and wonder we see of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So first, Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now we turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. We keep that that account in the back of our minds, that account of Christ's resurrection. And we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As far in the reading of God's word. People of God, it's been said, where hope ends, hell begins. Where hope ends, hell begins. Now, of course, we know that hell is far more than just the absence of hope. But you can imagine what this statement is saying. The place of true destitution, the place of true grief, the place of true pain is when there is no hope. Often those who will struggle with depression will reach those places where there just doesn't seem a way out. There is no hope, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, and then they feel this depression and this crushing weight. How much greater for those who truly have no hope. And I want us to contemplate that here as we are in worship, worshiping and thinking of the topic specifically of our own resurrection hope. And to think of our our brothers and sisters in the world who don't know this, who don't know Christ, And we realize they don't have any true hope. There is no true hope there. What they hope in are the meaninglessnesses of life itself, the things that pass away, that fade and fall. There is no ultimate hope. Why? Because at the end of the day, they believe they will die. And what then? We can even think of those those who believe in other gods and trusting to them for salvation. So maybe they have convinced themselves that they have a hope, but truly their hope is built on nothing. Though they may not experience it in themselves, clinging to some kind of adopted hope that will ultimately fail them, we say, well, what is that but a a fool's hope? I'm not calling them the, the fools as if we are so much better. I'm saying what everyone else in the world clings to for their hope of deliverance fails, and truly hell begins where hope ends. An eternity of suffering, an eternity of that hopelessness. You can think of this in our own life. When there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel, it's difficult. You can think of this in schoolwork. You can think of this in in college, in, in higher degrees, these things you work for in your own labors. Those labors can be difficult. The studying can be hard. Working can be hard. Early mornings, gathering, rising, working your bodies to to weariness and being tired, your minds to the point where they're mentally fatigued, and you go through this year after year. And you do this because there's a hope. There's there's a payoff. There's a graduation for students that comes. There's a paycheck for those who work, a provision for their families. There's a reward in that way and a blessing. And so we, we toil and we're okay with that. We're willing to toil because of that light there at the end. But if there were no paycheck. We labor. There was no graduation, nothing after the the endless papers and endless finals and all these things if there was no end to that and you just kept doing it for doing it's sake. Would we, would we have hope in that? Would we do it? Would we do it well? We would, we would fall because there is no hope. We need a resurrection hope. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. That's our first point from verse 3 in our passage today, resurrection hope. You see, our theme this morning is the living hope of the resurrection causes us to glorify God by joyfully standing firm even amidst trials. The living hope of the resurrection causes us to glorify God by joyfully standing firm, even amidst trials. What I like about this passage specifically is, is uh, Peter. I might make that mistake a lot. Usually I'll revert to Paul rather than Peter. So if I refer to him, it is Peter. We're in First Peter today. But Peter, uh, what I like about this passage is, is putting this, this resurrection living hope in the context of trials to a church, to a congregation that themselves were going through suffering trials and persecutions. You see, he wasn't talking to those who, who had it all good and, and it was just, just as, as it should be and it wasn't difficult. No, he's talking to those who were in severe pain. Severe trials, and he's telling them, where do you need to turn and what do you cling to? It is that light there at the end of the tunnel. It is your living hope. It is the resurrection of Christ that we share in. And by that, we can glorify God, which is the purpose for which we were created to glorify Him. And how do we do that? Well, we joyfully stand firm in the trials, clinging to the living hope. Without this living hope, what do we have? Ecclesiastes makes this point, makes it well. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Have you ever striven after wind to grab it, to hold it, to to be able to master it? You can't. You can't grab wind. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, there also was vanity. And so he says, even when there was pursuit of pleasure, even if it was hedonism itself, the pursuit, the the unfettered pursuit of, of entertainment, of some kind of joy in that way, even this was vain. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun, even even devoting yourself to work, to your job. Vain, vanity, and nothing. Why do we begin on, on, on this Easter Sunday, as we think of the resurrection, why do we begin there? Well, that's the place we have to begin. To look at what is vain and to look at what is hopeless helps us to see what is our true living hope. We're able to see that because... Everything else is vain. The the hopelessness of life begins to point us to the hopefulness in Christ. In this one phrase, Christ is risen. That changed everything in history. You see, the, the death of Christ, if it was just the death, accomplished nothing. His life and all that he did in keeping the law... His death and crucifixion, which we looked at just on Friday, that man of sorrows and all that he endured, the marring of his own flesh, all of that would be meaningless if he stayed in the tomb. use a sports metaphor here, what is the touchdown? What's the end zone? The end zone, the goal, the, the victory, crossing that line, wasn't the cross. It was Christ's resurrection and ascension. That was the end zone, that was the goal, that was the victory. If he wouldn't have pushed across that plane, if he wouldn't have reached the end zone there, then all of it would have been for naught. If Christ was dead, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was dead, then we are of most people to be pitied. To place our hope in a dead man, rotting in a tomb. No, our hope. Is in the risen one, the first fruits of the resurrection itself. And so this is where Peter takes his congregation, his suffering congregation, and points to them. Where their own situation may have appeared bleak and dark and hopeless, Peter is pointing them to the hope of the future. And why does he do this? What's his main goal? Peter tells for his purpose in writing the whole letter in 1 Peter 5:12. 1 Peter five twelve 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So why is Peter writing? He's writing that his hearers would stand firm in the faith. Why do we gather on Sunday? We gather to worship and praise our Lord, but underneath all of that is also the propelling force. We gather to worship that we would stand firm in the faith. This is where we receive grace. This is where we are encouraged and nourished to go on and continue to stand firm in the faith. And this is what Peter is calling them to do. Stand firm in the faith, but faith in what? We speak generally of the faith and in that generic way. Faith. Faith in what? And then we might say, well, in Christ. And that's true, but faith in Christ in what way? Faith in Christ that he accomplished all things and that he rose. That's where our faith is found. Not just the fact that it's Christ. Yes, it's Christ who did this, who rose. That's our faith. That's our hope. And So we see as we go through, the living hope of the resurrection causes that that joy. The the apostles make it plain that it is that hope that we look for. And so we look at this passage, we look beginning in verse 3, He begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, Peter's initial proclamation is one of praise to God. And so his desire is that his suffering congregation would praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 12, we didn't read the full passage, we stopped in verse 9, but verses 3 through 12 in the Greek are one long sentence. All of subordinate clauses that modify and support that one statement, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the center of what Peter is saying is he wants glory to the Lord. But why? Why praise God? We see it's because of resurrection hope. Peter says he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope is termed living. It's alive. Well, what is a living hope? Well, quite clearly, it's a hope that's not dead. We could say that at first. You know, the dead hopes are the hopes that you have that won't actually bring you to anything and won't achieve anything. A dead hope is, is hoping that money would give you joy. It's not. It'll fail. A dead hope is, is hoping that if you gain that job that it will be the the, the main thing of your life, and you'll have true joy forever. Well, no, it's not. That's a dead hope. These things that we look to and want to continue to look to, those are dead hopes. They don't last. They don't bring victory. That's a dead hope. So a living hope is what brings the victory, what brings life. It's also living because it's alive. Well, that's pretty redundant, isn't it? Well, it's, it's there. We have it. We see it. We possess it in Christ. It is alive and it's a living hope. It's, it's a hope that's not something that we normally think of with hope. It's, our, it's, it's, it's a sad thing that we usually speak of hope in the sense of, uh, well, we don't really expect it. Usually it's a kind of a far fetched idea. We have it mixed with doubt. We hope we get that job. We don't really expect it. Or I hope it works out for you is what we'll say. And we don't know. We're kind of uncertain and unsure. That's not the hope that Peter is talking about. It's A sure conviction. It's A sure trust. It's A sure trust in that hope. Hope is, is something for the future. That's what it is. You're looking towards something in the future for your salvation. That's hope. And our hope is alive. It's living. It will not disappoint. Why? Because it comes through Christ's own resurrection. Because Christ is alive, our hope is. Because Christ is living, we have that hope. And it isn't a fool's hope. It's a sure hope. a hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. A hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. Because of what has been done already, our future is certain and secure. It's been anchored. It's been done. He has risen. It cannot be undone. We're assured, then, of this hope. Verse 3 also gives the language of reproduction. It says, what? But that God has birthed us. He's caused us to be born to this hope. This is the idea that he has that we are the children of the living hope, that the hope will not put Peter's readers to shame. We are children of this hope. And so in the midst of the difficulty, they are to, to turn their attention to that raised life, to what they are children of themselves, of the hope of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection, what they've been raised to. If we wanted to sum it up in one word, what's the hope? What have they been given? Regeneration. New birth. They can take pleasure in life. They can trust and have hope because they've been reborn. Christ has begotten them. They are children of hope. So we've seen resurrection hope, and now we look at resurrection inheritance in verses 4 and 5. Resurrection inheritance. What is it to? Verse 4 says it's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. People of God, don't let these words simply pass through your heads. I want to use an illustration that we don't miss this. We can read this verse and say, oh, it's it's great. We got an inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wonderful. And really, all we've done is just kind of it's passed through our heads. But if I told each of you right now, a long-distance relation of each of you has, has passed away, and you've just received an inheritance that is incalculable. Well, what would happen? Wouldn't when, when your ears come up and be like, wait a second, what? I just received an inheritance, we're, we're going to get what? And then I said, yes, it's, it's imperishable. It's an imperishable inheritance. You'd be like, oh, whoa. Imperishable? It's undefiled? You mean it's, it's not going to bring defilement on me? It's not morally corrupt? Everything about it is good? It's unfading. You mean, what I'm about to receive in this inheritance from this long-lost relative is something that will never end? You know, we would hear that, and now now we're leaning forward in our seats. We're saying, wait, what? That's what we have? And then the joy that we would have, it would be like, I don't necessarily like this illustration because I'm not pro-lottery, but it'd be like winning the lottery. We'd be skipping out of here with what we've just won. What we just been given. That's why we can't let this just, just pass through our heads. It's, it's what? It's an inheritance. What's an inheritance? It's what you've been given by another. You're the recipient. It's yours. This living hope of the resurrection of Christ is far greater than the millions upon millions or the billions upon billions that we could, could ever rejoice in from receiving a, from a long-lost, rich relative that we didn't know. This is eternity of all of that. It's eternity of bliss. It's an eternity of the happiest moment you can think of in this life. Can it? We we talk about that way. Boy, I wish I could bottle that feeling. You could bottle that feeling. Heaven is that to its nth degree for all eternity. An unfading, imperishable inheritance, morally pure, not corrupt. This is what we're given. Resurrection life. Resurrection life is far more than just not dying. Those in hell won't die. They do not have life when we describe it. Because in God's word, death is separation from God. Death is to be opposed to God. Life is to be joined to God. Resurrection life is knowing the pure bliss of that for all eternity not just not dying. It's so much more than that. Verse 5 says, This inheritance is given to those who, by God's power, are being guarded. I'm going to pause right there in it. Who, by God's power, are being guarded. You know, you might think, okay, well, this inheritance is so great, but what if I lose it? What if it's taken from me? No. Peter addresses that. You are being guarded by God's power. The most powerful being ever, the most powerful one that can exist, he is guarding you through what? Faith. Faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why don't we doubt that we will receive the inheritance? Because it's guarded to us, it's given. God is guarding us by his power, and it comes through faith. Now, when we think again, using this illustration of riches, where would you take all that gold and jewelry and all these things that you have? You see, we lock them away in safety deposit boxes. We we trust in the security of steel and concrete or of secrecy. This is where we guard and defend it. And so you might think, well, so what's guarding this inheritance beyond the inheritance of anything else that could be given? The greatest of riches, what guards this? Does it surprise you to say it's your faith? speak of faith in many ways, but people of God, your faith is being guarded by Christ. This is the perseverance of the saints. This is the fact that God does guard you through his power. He upholds your faith. You see, faith isn't, isn't some flimsy thing, something that's not secure. It's far more secure than anything else because it's rooted in Christ and Christ keeps you. What does God's word say? He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. God guards our faith. It's not something we can boast in. It's not that we can rejoice that we're so great that we could could keep the faith through our power. It's God's power that keeps our faith That doesn't mean that we don't strive for it. Part of that power that he's doing is enabling us to strive and to endure. And remember, Peter's talking to a broken church. Likely those who thought their faith was not secure. Likely to those who thought, is it worth it? Because it's it's sort of a paradox. The very thing that gives them life is the reason they were suffering. The very faith That they clung to was the reason for their earthly pain. Peter says it's that that's being guarded. That's the key to your inheritance. That's the combination to the inheritance safe. The key to the safety deposit box, it's that faith that God guards to the greatest treasure, the most heartfelt treasure you would ever know. And it isn't weak because it's preserved by God. Cling to it what Peter says. Verse 5 continues to say that God is guarding through faith is salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's Peter saying? It's being guarded. It's, It's that faith and it's for a salvation ready to be revealed. This isn't salvation in the sense of justification and of righteous standing before God. We have that already. Peter isn't saying we need to await for that. He's saying what's being guarded and what's ready to be revealed in the last time is your salvation in its full expression and extent glorification, the full expression of the faith. God's Word talks about salvation in a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. There's a past tense in which we've been justified already. It's firm. We know it. We are saved. There's a present tense salvation in which you are called to work out your salvation. Not again that it is, in by, it is by our own works and power, but we are called to devote ourselves to that salvation. That God will be working it out even right now. And that's the present tense. And the future tense of salvation is that it will come in its fullness, glory, new life, new bodies. That salvation in its full extent and expression. That's what's going to come. It's a salvation ready to be revealed. It's there. It's waiting. That's what we cling to. It isn't in doubt. We're not waiting for a rendezvous. We're not waiting for that that safe to appear with all its inheritance. It's there for us. It's back there. It's waiting. We just need to go to it, and God's the one bringing uh, it to us. So Peter has in mind here the future aspect of salvation and that final achievement of salvation, being glorified in the eternal life with Christ. And in this sense, we look forward to it as not yet attaining that aspect of salvation. These verses express something profound to a struggling church. Their faith in Christ is the very thing that has put them in danger, but is the very thing that ushers them into glorified eternal life, resurrection hope. This is not something that we can sit on. This is not something that we just hear and have and don't use, Peter is saying. Devote your whole life to this, brothers and sisters. Devote your life to that truth. Don't sit on it. It's not just an aspect of who you are. It defines who you are. You're not yourself with a little bit of religion that you paste onto your shirt. It's, it's the whole thing. It's our very being. Our faith will be weak so long as we stay fixated on the dead hopes of the world. So long as we want to stay fixated on the things of this world and what everything else is and everyone else is hoping in, then we will have a weak faith. But Peter is saying to that suffering church, don't place your faith and hope there. Place it in what you are in eternity in Christ. Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 13 of the pearl of great price. In that parable, the merchant comes and finds a pearl that's beyond the price of anything. And what does he do? He goes and he sells all that he has to buy that plot of ground to gain access to that pearl. And the point of the parable is that it is worthy. This merchant wasn't foolish. This merchant was wise. He knew what was right. That pearl was so magnificent and so great. It warranted the wholesale auctioning off of everything to gain possession of that pearl. And in, the, in Jesus' parable, what is the pearl? It's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like that pearl of great price that we throw all away to receive, to trust in, and hope. It's there, it's ours, and in Christ we are able to cast off all things and trust in Him because the living hope of the resurrection causes us to glorify God by joyfully standing even amidst trials. So we see that we have that hope. Now we see to a resurrection joy in verses 6 to 9. A resurrection joy, this is our third point. It's a joy to stand life's burdens. If I was trying to create a heading for those verses, it would be that. A joy to stand life's burdens. Verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice. Well, in what are you rejoicing? Everything he said in these verses. All of this... This we rejoice in, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice their joys in the context of these trials. The idea here is that their joy in the resurrected hope of Christ is what will sustain them and carry them through the trials. The joy that will stand when all else is failing. And there are four reasons we can look at in these verses for why we as Christians rejoice in trials. Why would Peter say to them to rejoice in trials? Well, there are four practical reasons why we can. First, our hope in Christ points us beyond the trial. Our hope in Christ points us beyond the trials. Our troubles last only for a little while, while hope in Christ is forever. This is the illustration with which we began. It's that light at the end of the tunnel. You are able and willing to go through the the grueling tasks of schooling, accreditation, and work because there is the goal. What I found interesting as I went through college and seminary and, and felt the burden of, of a lot of work and reading and all this, these assignments, and at the time you gather together with other students, you're like, I don't know that I can do this. How are you? How are you even staying afloat? There's so much to do. And, and then in our sin, we sort of say, I don't know how the professors could give us this much. This just can't be done. And it's it's grueling. I say that to say it's hard. You're like, I don't even know that I can endure this. And then what ends up happening, at least what I experienced, was when it's done, so the light's not only at the end of the tunnel, you, you, you're, you passed out of the tunnel. When it's done, you graduated the test or whatever is behind you. You can look back and say, yes, it was grueling. I remember that. But somehow the trial isn't what it appeared to be when you were in it. You look back upon it and you think, okay, that... That was hard and that was bad, but it wasn't wasn't insurmountable. I see what God was doing. You're able to see what he accomplished through it, and so you look back at a trial and say, you know, it was worth it. No matter what you're going through right now, that is what you will feel and think upon that full giving of your salvation. We are raised up in glory. As great as your trials appear now, As hard as they may be, that's what you will do. You will look back and say, It wasn't as bad as I thought compared to what I have now attained. And so we can hope in Christ because it points us beyond the trials to something greater, more lasting, more enduring. And in that, we can rejoice in our trials, though they be hard and difficult. What's the second reason we can rejoice in trials? Our faith and hope are strengthened through the very sufferings that we endure. Our faith is strengthened through the very sufferings we endure. We see this practically in our own life. We see it in Peter's own words where he says, though if necessary, you suffer now. It is sometimes in all of our lives necessary for us to suffer. His own congregation was suffering persecutions, but if it's necessary to suffer, they will suffer. I like the show Forged in Fire. It's on the History Channel. It's about blade making. They make blades. They make swords. And in it, it's a violent process. The, the, the metal is heated up. It's forged together. It's, it's, it's he, he, reheated and beaten on an anvil. It's lengthened. And then what do they do? They, they heat the blade up so it's glowing. It's this orange glowing color and then what they have to do is they have to, to dunk it into a tank of oil and quench it is what it's called and it flames up and there's, there's just steam burning off it. It's a violent process but what comes out of it through that forging and that heating comes out a strong blade. A strong blade that's not too brittle because then they temper it so it's heated up again but not to the point of glowing and now what is there? It's, it's a sword or a, a knife. It's steel that is hard and yet won't dent and break. It's not too brittle in its strength. It's not too weak as to bend and not return true. It's strong. This is what trials do for us. God will at times take us, take us in the tongs of persecution, dip us into a fire, and form us as we're glowing. He quenches us and tempers us. I'm just basically using different imagery for what Peter himself is using in the refinement of gold. This is what he, he, he himself points to in verse 7, that gold is proven and made pure by fire. So that it's genuine, that it's proven, that it's tested. This is what happens to us through the trials. Through the trials we endure as we look to the resurrection hope, we are able to see that we are strengthened and strong. Third, why do we rejoice in trials? Because our hope in Christ joins joy to suffering. Our hope in Christ joins joy to suffering. What is this getting at? Well, our sufferings bring a reward and a blessing. There's, there's hope. Psalm fifty-six, eight says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God has kept count of our tossings, of our tears. They're in his book, and he will repay them. Or repay might be the wrong word. He'll wash them away so that the, the counting of our tears will bring forth the blessings of heaven itself. 2 Corinthians four seventeen to 18 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For Paul and Corinthians to call what they were enduring a light momentary affliction, that's not him saying that it isn't difficult. But, compared to the hope of what we have and what's coming, it is light. It is momentary, whatever trial we endure. You can think to yourselves, if Paul is able to call the sufferings you're going through right now light and momentary, how great is the inheritance that we await? Your pain is real. We don't downplay that. The realness of your pain should... Help you to be able to look forward to then the reality of the future blessing that will so eclipse this pain that you will say, "I would gladly go through that again because God's will was perfect and right and blessed." And so we have hope, and we rejoice in trials for the heaven itself that awaits. And last, why do we re- why do we rejoice in trials? Well, the supreme reason for joining joy to suffering comes into view. When Jesus Christ is revealed, what does it say? That the gold of our faith will shine to his praise. So why do we rejoice in trials? It results in praise and glory. Is it your own praise and glory or is it Christ's? We've been so joined to him. Can we say the two are mutually exclusive? Is not our own praise and glory the praise and glory of Christ's name? Do we not rejoice fully when we see that praise stand firm, where we see Christ glorified in what? Christ glorified in your precious faith? That's what this verse is saying. That there would be praise and glory and honor for Christ because of the gold and preciousness of your faith. Christ is glorified, and you are glorified in that. To bring praise and honor to him. So we rejoice in these trials. Verse 7 says, Our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in all these things. Peter directs that suffering congregation to these. People of God, if hell begins where hope ends, perhaps we can say heaven is born when hope begins. For the Christian, where does our hope begin? I would say it begins for us with the empty tomb, with the resurrection. As Peter has made clear, it is this hope that caused us to praise God, to rejoice, to endure trials, to stand firm in the faith. And people of God, our hope is simply summarized in this Easter truth. Christ is risen, so our hope is alive. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise your glorious name. We rejoice in all these things that you have presented before us. The glory of knowing you, our Lord and Savior, the glory of hope, of a living hope. Let that not be lost to us today as we remember a resurrection, a time and an event in history itself that has given us, that has given us eternal hope. Help us to rejoice in that. May we, as you have called your people to do, stand firm in that hope. pray this in Christ's name.